Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. And as you may know, the network is run by volunteers. There are about a 100 of us, but we do have expenses. So we'd like to ask you to contribute a little something if you can. If you enjoy the programming we produce, then we hope that you will take a moment to go to any New Books Network page and hit the button that says Donate to NBN. And whether you contribute or not, we'd like to thank you for listening to the network. Thanks for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book that takes a deeper look at some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. This week's guest is Jules Boykoff, Chair of the Department of Politics and Government at Pacific University in Oregon. Jules has published books and academic articles on a variety of topics, such as political dissent, mass media, and debates over the environment and climate change in the United States. He also writes regularly on the politics and economics of sports. Indeed, as he explains at the start of our interview, it was his experience as an athlete that first led him to the study of politics. For this episode, we are discussing Jules's book, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games, published by Rutledge in 2013. The book is based largely on research that Jules conducted in London before and during the 2012 Olympics. Although most of his work focuses on recent Summer Olympics, you'll find that many of his observations are also valid for the Winter Games, in particular the games that are beginning right now in Sochi, Russia. As an expert on the Olympics, Jules has been busy in the lead-up to the Sochi Games. So I'm grateful to him for taking time between lectures and media appearances to talk to us about his work. So without further delay, here's my interview with Jules Boykoff. So we usually begin with a bit of background about our guest. And uh, by way of an introduction, I'll say that this week's guest, Jules Boykoff, is a researcher in political science. Uh, He's published a number of books and articles in academic journals. He regularly publishes commentary in various media outlets. Uh, His writing has appeared in the New York Times and in The Guardian. Jules is also a poet. He's published collections of of poems. But Jules, going way back before all this, you were a really good soccer player. In fact, you probably still are a really good soccer player. But but once upon a time, you played soccer at the collegiate and at the national levels. So can you tell us, uh, for some introduction... How was it that you went from uh, um, from elite soccer player to becoming a political scientist slash poet? Well, it was a slow transition, that's for sure. But in a lot of ways, it really did start with soccer. So as you mentioned, I, I played collegiately. I played at the University of Portland out in Oregon under the legendary coach Clive Charles, which was a real treat. And afterward, I had the good fortune of an indoor professional indoor soccer league starting the very next summer. So I graduated in 1993, and boom, a league starts that summer. So I tried out for the team, uh, was fortunate enough to make the team, and played professional soccer for, for four years for three different teams around the United States. Also, at the, at the same time, I, I was career. I was representing the U.S. Olympic soccer team, and I remember my first game was in France at a tournament there in 1990, my first international match, that is. And we were playing against Brazil, the Brazilian Olympic team. 
And there were tons of fans there. And they all were rooting for Brazil, it seemed. Every last one of them, I swear. Now, I walked away thinking to myself, well, they probably just appreciate the beautiful Brazilian style of soccer. I can hardly blame them. But then we went on and we played what was then Yugoslavia and what was then Czechoslovakia. And then, actually, Bruce, we played the Soviet Union. And everywhere we went, we received kind of a similar cold French shoulder, if you will. Huh. And I, I went, I was sort of wondering, wow, I, you know, I came into it somewhat naive, 19-year-old, and I, I thought that everyone was going to be rooting for the USA, and that certainly wasn't the case in France. And so that put it in my head that I need to start figuring things out. And I went home, and I was studying politics at the time, and I really burrowed myself in more to figure out the role of the United States in, in world affairs and why it might be that there might be some maybe even resentment of the United States and how that can play out in terms of who cheers for who on the athletic fields. And so that really kind of started my, my deep assessment of United States politics and kind of where sports fits into it. So your answer to that might uh, overlap with uh, my next question. I was going to say at the, at the start, we should say at the start, uh, that you also regularly publish in journals such as The Nation and The New Left Review, so, so journals that are associated with the intellectual and political left. And one of the positions you've taken in writing for uh, these journals as well as academic journals is a, a sharply critical view of the Olympics and of, of sporting mega events in general. And so I want to ask you, following up on that, how did this critical view, so you talked about how you wanted to take a deeper view of, of sports in the world, how did this more critical view of, of big-time sports develop? Uh, did this come gradually as well, or was this a, a sudden realization that you had? It, it did come somewhat gradually, actually. Um, you know, let me say at the outset, I'm a huge sports fan, and we talked about my soccer background, and, and I still follow sports. I cheer for my local team, Portland Timbers, and Major League Soccer. I follow many different sports. I'm eagerly anticipating what we'll see in, in the Sochi Winter Olympics. Um, but, you know, just because I'm keen to celebrate the amazing athletes doesn't mean I'm willing to ignore the brass knuckle politics and the sort of brute economics that sit just behind the Olympic curtain. I sort of, you know, I, I take the approach, we don't need to sacrifice our critical thinking on, on the altar of sport. But at the same time, I, I don't wish to be a spoil sport. And that did kind of come gradually uh, through doing a lot of deep reading. And then also just really thinking about my own position in all this. You know, I, when I, as a professional soccer player, I had contracts uh, for shoe contracts, like personal shoe contracts with various corporations. And I, I started looking into the, the production practices of these corporations. So that was a really important part of things for me as well, is taking a, a critical look at my own role and my complicity in these systems that, that I tend to now quite you know, vociferously critique. Let me follow up on your, your insistence that you remain a sports fan and that, that you look forward to the Winter Olympics starting next next week. Uh, a couple months ago, I had Peter Leggi, the historian, on, on the program talking about the book he edited about the, the 2010 World Cup. And, and something that struck me in reading the different essays in the book is how he had these different academics and journalists who made various critiques of the of the World Cup. They commented on the nationalism they saw, the commercialism, uh, the heavy hand of FIFA, this, this false veneer of African culture that the media presented during the World Cup. Uh, but almost to a person, these, these people who took this critical perspective of the World Cup, they said that once they, they got around the stadiums, they entered the stadiums, once the matches began, they were, they were drawn in. And, and so I'll ask you that at the start. What is it about these events? You know, before we begin with your critique of the Olympics... What is it about these events that draws us? Well, I think it does boil down to the amazing athletics. I mean, for me, that's what it's all about, is getting to see these athletes who've put so much dedication and time into their sports, and then to perform them at such an incredibly high level. I mean, it's really poetry in motion, if I can maybe use a cliche there. Um, I really, I, that for me, that's what it really comes down to. And, you know, you mentioned that I did... I've written a number of pieces for New Left Review. I wrote one, The Nation as well. And, and there is a tendency, I think, among the left 
to sort of dismiss sports for all the reasons that you just laid out there as a sort of a waste of time, sort of a new wave opiate of the masses kind of kind of thing. And I just don't buy that argument at all. I don't think we need to devote ourselves to the death of complexity. I think we can hold different ideas in our hands at the same time. What I mean is we can say these are amazing athletes who we should appreciate on one hand, and we should also be able to sort of critique maybe the grizzled underbelly, the sort of dodgy corporate underbelly of these big mega sports events. And the other reason I think that you know a lot of leftists kind of get sports wrong is is that they're missing out on the possibility of conversations with people who hold different political views from them. You know, for a decade, I devoted myself to writing about state repression and the suppression of dissent by media and corporations. And and whenever I would bring it up with my uncles in Milwaukee or sort of my <laughs> mom, you know, I didn't get very far. But, you know, my uncles and other family members who don't really want to talk about politics with me are perfectly happy to talk about sports. And eventually we do get to that place where we are talking about politics, whether we all wanted to in the first place or not. And so, you know, I think that when people on the left decide to sort of forego discussing sports and just dismiss it, poo-poo it, look down their noses at it, I think we're missing out on those possible conversations with people. So let me follow up on that. So with these conversations with your uncles, um, when you talk about sports and you get around to talking about, say, uh, money-grubbing owners or the leagues or the IOC or, or corruption they see in sports, do you find – do they tend to agree with you in matters of, of sports and politics where they wouldn't agree with you in, in just politics, politics? No, that's exactly right. I mean my uncles come from working-class backgrounds here in Oregon and, and also in, in Wisconsin. So when you break it down and sort of take it away, these labels, and you just talk about, hey – these people are making off with loads of money. Often the times it's on the backs of taxpayers just like you. They're all of a sudden quite sympathetic to these arguments. You know, they don't want to see corporate symbols on every last patch of turf on this earth. You know, they, they want to watch the sports just like I do. So, yeah, we find a lot of common ground in ways that we wouldn't necessarily. If I said, oh, let's talk about the history of the suppression of the American Indian movement in the United States, we wouldn't get nearly as far. Mm-hmm. Well, Jules, let's turn to your book, and uh, I want to start with this term you have in the title of the book. What What is celebration capitalism? Sure. Well, I think to understand celebration capitalism, we first have to consider Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism. And the Canadian critic and, uh, Naomi Klein in, write, wrote this really great book called The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And basically in that book, she explains how neoliberal capitalists capitalize on catastrophe. Um, she argues that the goal of these people is to sort of exploit social trauma. So you have disasters like wars or hurricanes or military coups or terrorism or what have you. And they th- these episodes spark uh, states of shock that we experience that then we are willing to give up things that we would otherwise never give up during normal political times. And so she basically says that what happens is there's, there's this awful shock, there's this peril and capitalists team up with their collaborators in government to install neoliberalism, which is, you know, policies rooted in privatizing things, getting rid of regulations or deregulations and basically kind of dismantling the social welfare state, snuffing out Keynesianism, and sort of the mantra is to let the market decide. Now, she does mention in her book that this privatization process can be paid for with public money, but her primary contention is that the ultimate goal of these corporations is to privatize everything with a pulse, which she calls uh, free market fundamentalism. And, you know, I think that she's right in many cases. And when there's a perilous moment that we're all suffering, we are more vulnerable to these kind of processes of neoliberalism. But I also think that capitalism is a nimble shapeshifter and it takes different forms in different moments. And in fact, it takes different forms in the same historical moment. And that's really where celebration capitalism comes into the picture. Because I argue in in this book, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games, that uh, there can also be a state of exception that's not perilous. She talks about hurricanes, tornadoes, and economic downturns. I'm talking about the Olympics, 
which are incredibly popular, as you well know, Bruce. And so, you know, this is a social celebration. And what I basically argue at, at the root of it that's different from Klein is that well, rather than neoliberal policies of getting rid of regulations and privatizing everything, we actually see something quite different. We see a relationship that is rooted in these public-private partnerships, not full-on privatization, but public-private partnerships. But the only thing is, these public-private partnerships are often super lopsided, whereby the public pays a huge chunk of the price tag for a social celebration like the Olympics or the World Cup. And the private companies that are the, the corporate sponsors and whatnot, they tend to walk off with any kind of uh, profit that accrue. So basically with celebration capitalism, I, I break it down into six component parts. But the bottom line is that it, it's sort of the affable cousin to Naomi Klein's disaster capitalism. And I argue that they can function like a one-two punch where you have the big social celebration, say the London 2012 Olympics, where huge infusions of public taxpayer money was put in to pull off the event. And then in the wake of it, the elected officials can say, hey, look, we need to do austerity a la disaster capitalism because we don't have the funds that we would have normally had. You know, so they can go like a sort of they can function like a one two punch, if you will. And so what role do these uh, um, international uh, sport federations or organizations? So like the IOC or FIFA, what role do they play in in um, uh, organizing these these festivals of celebration capitalism? They are vital. I mean, while disaster capitalism relies on supranational entities like the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, the World Trade Organization to put forth neoliberal policies and ideology, celebration capitalism has its own powerful promoter, and that's the International Olympic Committee. They set the tone. They set the rules, and then these international federations that you mentioned, uh, by and large, pretty much have to follow suit. Why is that? Why do they have to follow suit? Well, I mean, the International Olympic Committee holds tremendous power over where these events are, are going to be held and who's going to get to participate in them. And so, you know, it's their show. It's their game. And, you know, that's, that's been the sort of struggle for host cities in particular, you know, because you have to sign the, the contracts ahead of time that you're going to harmonize your laws in accordance with the IOC charter and dictates. And that can lead to sort of uh, odd, even funky laws on the books in various host cities that would never pass under other kind of conditions. So, yeah, the international it's their game. They have the ball and, and they're going to take it somewhere else if, if you don't go along with what they say. Later in your book, you have this description of the IOC that I, that I really like that uh, you, you describe it as a, as a parastate. And uh, that, that it does have something of an ideological mission. And you talk about that uh, the IOC is built upon, and, and I'm quoting you, a utopian social engineering scheme. So can you talk about that? Sure. I mean, in a lot of ways, it goes back to Baron de Coubertin, uh, Pierre de Coubertin, this French aristocrat who started the restarted the Olympics in the 1890s. And he had a very idealistic vision for what the Olympics could be. And I think that upon that foundation, we, we see that ideology built. I mean, he's a fascinating guy. I mean, actually, he was a poet, um, <laughs> the Baron. And in fact, he won an award at the 1912 Olympics in Stockholm back when they would give out prizes for art and literature. He was writing under a pseudonym, and but there were people who suspect that the judges knew that it was actually the Baron because he'd written a novella under that one of the two pseudonyms he was using. In any case, the Baron was putting forth this really idealistic version of the way the world should function and the role of sport in it. And it's it's wonderful. It's great. In fact, in, in the poem that won the the prize for literature, he says, oh, sport, you know, you are beauty, you are audacity. And it, basically, sport is everything to him, and it can help create these wonderful, positive social relationships between between people. And so, you know, if you read the Olympic Charter, wow, it sounds totally awesome. It's just beautiful. Peace, love, and harmony. And it's hard to disagree with a lot of it. And just where it gets complicated is when you take those, those more widely accepted principles of equality, fairness, anti-discrimination, and whatnot in the context of sport, and you try to plop them down into a, a particular political context where it starts to get sticky and tricky 
And uh, that's where there tends to be more political activism around these issues. But yeah, the you know the International Olympic Committee are the, are this massive juggernaut today, but built on this foundation of idealism. And it's kind of funny too because you know the Olympic Committee says that politics and sports don't mix. You know we try to transcend politics and all that stuff. But I mean, even when you look at the Olympic Charter, there's elements of politics in there and, and pushing for certain types of ideology, as, as you were talking about it before. It's pretty clear. It, it can be read, I think, the International Olympic Committee's Olympic Charter as an ideological document. I don't necessarily mean that as a critique, per se, uh, but all issues are political issues, if we're to believe George Orwell. And uh, this is an ideological document. So I want to look at the case studies that you talk about uh, in your book. You apply uh, your theory of celebration capitalism to uh, some of the different different Olympics. And uh, I want to talk about, you discuss in the book, both of the Los Angeles Summer Games, uh, the 1932 Games and the 1984 Games, as significant in the emergence of this, this celebration capitalism. So can you talk about these? Absolutely. So 1932 might seem like a, a quirky choice, but I, in looking at the, the history of that Olympics, I, I felt like there were some key things that happened during this time period. Um, first of all, there, the games started to become seen more in terms of political economic terms. And the, the people of Los Angeles absolutely did not want to kick in taxpayer funding to, to push for these games. And so there was a fight over that in 1932. A fight that actually, I think, in a lot of ways was a precursor to some of the battles that we see over the use of taxpayer funds today. Second, the IOC really smartened up in 1932 and started offering all sorts of amenities to people in the press. There's much more careful attention given to the press. They're given all sorts of amenities, and, and their lives are made very easy in 1932 in Los Angeles. 1984 is interesting to me for different reasons. A lot of scholars of Olympic history point to Los Angeles as singularly different in that they were largely privatized uh, because of the particular political economic moment. We have to remember that these games in 1984 occurred after the 1976 double debacle of Denver and Montreal. What I mean is the IOC had originally given the games to Denver to host in 1976, the Winter Olympics, and the people of Denver rallied against this and said, we're not going to give taxpayer money. We're worried about that environmental despoliation that's probably going to occur. And they fought back and they passed a referendum that said they weren't going to support the games. And the IOC was forced to move the games from Denver to Innsbruck, Austria. The other part of the double debacle, if you will, was was Montreal, which Mayor Jean Drapeau famously said that the Olympics would no sooner run a deficit than a man would have a baby. And the price tag of these games went from $125 million to $1.5 billion. So a huge spike in price. And they did run a deficit that they actually didn't pay off for 30 years until 2006. Well, in the wake of those two moments, there wasn't a lot of interest. As you recall, there's also the boycotts going on during this time period as well in the early 1980s, the Olympic boycotts, which really kind of spoiled it for a lot of people. So nobody was bidding on the 1984 Olympics. And that's why Los Angeles not only won the games, but had a lot more freedom to do what it wanted because it had a lot more leverage. There was nobody else that was basically able to do them that year. So with that, they brought in Peter Uberoff, who ran the games in particularly private fashion. But for me, it was really sort of a neoliberal blip on the wider screen of celebration capitalism's development in that you know, he, he was able to privatize things. And this was the, really the birthing place of the, the Olympic program, which eventually became what's today known as the Worldwide Partnership Program, the corporate sponsor program that helps to pay for some, a, a good chunk of the operating costs of the game. Not the overall cost, but the operating cost. So 1984 was interesting, unique. It also led to a $222-plus million surplus. The IOC doesn't like to use the word profit, which was, was unique to the Olympics as well. But you know, even though the games pulled a profit, if you will, there were hidden public subsidies that I think we should keep in mind. I mean, policing, 
uh, water use, the use of local locally owned facilities and state owned facilities that often happen kind of quietly under the radar. So even at the most privatized Olympics, there was a lot a, a lot of other things going on, kind of moving toward a, a celebration capitalism rather than a neoliberal direction. So you talk about the 1984 Olympics as, as the first Olympics where you have major uh, corporate sponsorship of the games. So so looking at the games today, who are who are the big players in terms of corporate sponsors and and how important are they to carrying off an Olympics? Well, they, they have different tiers now of, of Olympic sponsors and the worldwide partnership program is the big one where each partner donates in the neighborhood of $100 million to be named as a worldwide partner. Those include the likes of Visa, um, Procter & Gamble, huge, huge corporations vie for these. There's in the neighborhood of a dozen of them, um, anywhere you know from 10 to, to 12-ish. And, and they donate a significant chunk of funding, but it, it shouldn't be overstated what these companies contribute in terms of the overall cost of the games. Hundred million might might sound like quite a bit of money, and it adds up to more than a billion in both in both London 2012 and more than a billion again in Sochi 2014. Uh, but in terms of overall costs, oh, that's just a little drop in the bucket. We need to remember that actually the taxpayers in most most locations end up paying a huge chunk of the price tag. And in London, depending on how you calculate it. Anywhere from 88 to 90 percent of the tab was paid for by the public, by the taxpaying public. In Sochi, there's been the estimate recently put forth by the anti-corruption critic Alexei Navalny that only 4 percent of overall Olympic costs in Sochi are being paid for by truly private entities. So, you know, there, there's that going on as well. So turning back to the case studies that you look at in the book, one, one key case study is uh, uh, the Athens Olympics in 2004, and, and you talk about that as particularly important in, in this development of celebration capitalism. So why was that so significant? Well, it put in some of the, the examples uh, that, that are key features were sort of installed in, in Athens. I mean, for starters, there's this idea that the Olympics are only going to cost X amount of dollars, but in reality, they end up costing a lot more. So there's that dynamic where you sort of get fished in as like a, you know, a bonhamist bait and switch where we say, oh, it's only going to cost you know, so many million, but it ends up costing, of course, more. There's cost so, overruns. So can I ask about that? Is it the case of cost overruns or is it the case of shady accounting where, where a lot of the costs are hidden? That's a good question, and I, th- I think it's both. I think in order to sell the games to the public, it, it, you have to say, oh, they're only going to cost this much because public support is a really big factor that the International Olympic Committee takes into consideration. But then there's also inevitable cost overruns that happen when you're when you're creating an Olympics. I mean, in Sochi, how how are they to necessarily know that there's going to be a tectonic fault underneath where they're building the the ski jump, which which jackknifed the costs of building the ski jump? And so, I mean, there's things that happen. So it's it's a little bit of both. But we definitely see that in Athens. We also see. Another core feature of celebration capitalism that we really haven't talked about, and, and that's the sort of militarization of the public sphere to sort of preserve the Olympic spectacle. And that was definitely going on in, in Athens. And also that just emblematic of the creation of these what some people call white elephant stadiums, you know, building all these huge edifices to host the Olympics and then not really being able to fill them with events after the games. And Athens is particularly striking for that. I mean, one of the uh, stadia that were, was developed for Athens is now being used for uh, as a homeless shelter, basically a squatting shelter for people who need need homes. And so, I mean, that's like one of the best uses of, of one of these stadiums as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there are other stadiums like the Bird's Nest in Beijing that are, that are very rarely used except for one-off events like can a guy tightrope across the top of it. So um, these white elephants uh, were tromping around Athens and, and are a, a feature of celebration capitalism. So you write about the London Olympics in 2012 as uh, really the pinnacle of, of celebration capitalism, and you were actually at uh, at the games in London that year. Uh, you were doing research. So, so what did you observe, and and how does this represent the uh, the quintessential case of celebration capitalism? I was there, and it was remarkable. It was 
it was fun to be there. There was that festive atmosphere for sure, but there was also there. It would also really really conform to this idea of celebration capitalism that I have. I can kind of break it down. First of all, the, the state of exception is key to celebration capitalism. In London, one interesting example of a state of exception is that they had 250 miles of VIP traffic lanes that were not just for athletes, medics, and the International Olympic Committee officials, but also for the corporate sponsors, taxi drivers, regular folk. They weren't allowed in. So um, there was that. That's been in other places as well, these VIP lanes. Um, in London, it was interesting. I was tracking the media really carefully, and before the Olympics started, there was all sorts of room for critique. But once the Olympics actually began, you could see these same people that were crit- criticizing the Olympics on many grounds all of a sudden saying, okay, now's the time, though, to just enjoy the games and, and get on board. I, I, rem- I remember reading that. I remember reading articles along those lines. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Not, no, not at all. I mean, the, the thir- a third dimension of, fest- of uh, celebration capitalism is festive commercialism that, that um, dredges up public support and backing for the games and the torch relay i witnessed i was i was down in brighton and i went and watched it down in in brighton pass through and it's this amazing cavalcade of corporate buses that roll through only thereafter followed by the actual torch runner who's encased in police by the way and just like so that no one can jump in and push the person with the torch over so it was kind of a bizarre experience there so there but but yet it was going through these various communities and, and making everybody feel this sort of festive commercialism that's key to celebration capitalism. And then, you know, the, the sort of political economic backbone of celebration capitalism are these public-private partnerships. And, you know, when you hear that word public-private partnership, you might think that, hey, it's roughly 50-50 public-private. It kind of implies that to a certain degree. And as I mentioned, in London, it was 88 to 98% of the games, depending on how you calculate it, was paid for by the taxpayers and the Olympic Village was supposed to be a private development but you know the credit crunch and the financial collapse of the economy led the or the private company that was running it to just basically give up it was fully nationalized if you will in other words paid for by taxpayers and then sold at a loss to the Qatari ruling family's property firm they lost 275 million pounds on the deal so it, it was a good example of that that sort of public-private partnership gone awry where at the end of the day, the, the public has to act as a fiscal backstop when the private flops on its back and can't do its job. Um, also, the, the environmental stuff, that's another key tenet to celebration capitalism. And, of course, everybody in London said these are going to be the greenest games ever. And, in fact, they, they started a new pro- uh, program there called the Sustainability Partnership Program, that included firms that you always think of when you think of sustainability, like BP, for example, <laughs> um, but also BMW, BT, Cisco, EDF Energy, which has big nuclear pushes big nuclear in a lot of ways, and then General Electric as well. So they kind of took this, um, according to the cr- critics at least, they took this greenwashing to a new level. Actually, I, I was just the other day, Bruce, looking at a report that was put out by a Toronto-based media firm that listed the 100 greenest corporations, the most ecologically minded corporations in the planet. And of that 100, only one of London 2012 sustainability partners was on the list, and that was Cisco, who came in at number 11. Unbelievably, BP didn't make the list, actually. <laughs> you know, and the last thing with, with, with celebration capitalism is this idea that the security industry and local policing units who are responsible for preventing terrorism, they make off great because they have to preserve this whole celebratory spectacle we've been talking about. And, you know, they basically treat the Olympics like their own private ATM machine. They get to bolster and militarize their weapon stocks. And we definitely saw that in London. You know, you had Typhoon fighter jets and Puma helicopters controlling the city's airspace. Uh, You had people that were trained snipers who had the option to use lethal force. You had the Royal Navy putting its biggest warship along the River Thames. Uh, The BBC reported that the Olympic security had obtained this thing called a long-range acoustic device, an LRAD. Basically, these are devastating little uh, weapons that are used in military zones like, say, Iraq, 
um, where they look like a satellite dish, but you can just crank up the lever on them and their eardrum smashing sound flies out of them at whatever target you have. Um, so, you know, all these things combined in London and in, in, into a really powerful sort of apex of, of this dynamic that I've described as celebration capitalism. And yet and yet it works. As you said at the start, it, it was fun. You were caught up in the in the atmosphere. Yeah, I mean, I, I was. And it's 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 only because, like I mentioned at the outset, I mean, I, I'm not devoted to the death of complexity. I, I like to sort of wade into that complexity where I can. I can enjoy the sport side of it absolutely while being quite critical of these other developments. I mean, there, there was a very military sheen to the Olympics in, in London. And part of that was because this private security firm, G4S, who was supposed to provide uh, thousands of, of bag checkers and security workers, basically realized just before the games that they weren't going to be able to tr- provide enough trained workers. And so the, the military... But they literally had to call in the troops to check bags and, and do security at venues. And you'd see members of the, the British military walking around, you know, after their shift. And so there there was definitely a military sheen. I mean, I didn't even mention they ratcheted surface-to-air missiles on the top of people's apartment buildings around London. I mean, you know, there there's a very strong military energy that moved into the city to preserve this political spectacle. Yeah, the lockdown atmosphere of London is presented in the in the cover photograph on your book where you have uh, – you didn't take this photograph. You took many in the book, but uh, this particular one shows uh, four London police, uh, a couple – a few of them wearing bobby hats. And, and one in particular is is eyeing the photographer. Photographer with with this stern look of of I'm watching you you know I, I I'm suspicious of what you're going to do with that camera. No, I love that photo. Um, Martin Slavin, who's a London-based photographer and photojournalist, he took that and let me use it for the cover. Yeah, I think you you described it perfectly. So we skipped over the Beijing Olympics, and I actually wanted to ask about those in connection with with the Sochi Winter Games, which are coming up. And uh, it seems that these two are are similar to each other, and and in some way a variation from your theory. So I want to throw this out to you and, and see what you think. So with with both Beijing Games and with the Games in Sochi, we have we have two undemocratic states, two two emerging economies. Uh, both China and Russia are seeking the Olympics to build their national prestige, to establish themselves as kind of legitimate players on, on the international stage. Um, in both cases, you have the state deeply entwined in the economic sector. So I was wondering in reading these, is this uh, in Beijing and Sochi, are these examples of celebration capitalism similar to what we saw in London or Los Angeles? Or, or is this something else? Is this something like celebration statism? Well, you know, that, that's a great question. And in a lot of ways, celebration capitalism is celebration statism because, you know, as you know, in, in academia, there's been this tendency over the last few decades to attribute all social phenomena, all political phenomenon to neoliberalism. And, and this book should be read as uh, a definite response to that overhyped tendency in my book. Oh, this hap- this social phenomenon happened. Oh, it was neoliberalism. Oh, that one. Oh, of course, it was neoliberalism. And a lot of times people don't even have to explain. Academics just all kind of look at each other, wink, wink. Oh, yeah, neoliberalism, <laughs> of course. That's what, it, that's what caused it. So, I mean, in a way, you, you could say that celebration capitalism is bringing the state back into the discussion because with neoliberalism, the idea is the state moves itself out of playing a role in all these things. You privatize everything. You're getting rid of state regulations and letting the market decide, if you will, as goes the rhetoric. And so, yes, um, I would say that that some people call this regulatory capitalism as well so in, in the academic literature. What I'm calling, you know, celebration capitalism shares a lot of the traits with that. But I would say that, you know, Beijing and Sochi are, are certainly connected on many levels just like you mentioned, the, it, it's being used by both regimes, if you will, to try to build prestige and to sort of show the world that they can pull off an event like this. And and yes, the, the state has played a, a massive role, and we've, we've seen them to be the two of the most expensive Olympics ever as well, in part because the infrastructure just wasn't there in either location to, to pull this off. But, 
yes, the, the state plays a major role in celebration capitalism. And, I, and I'm trying to sort of bring the state back into the analysis because I feel like it's been pushed out all too readily. Mm-hmm. Jules, I want to switch gears and uh, talk about a shorter piece that you just uh, published a couple weeks ago uh, with the journalist Dave Zirin. And uh, you and Dave talk about in this piece that, that you both anticipate that the Sochi Olympics Olympics could be a stage for uh, athlete descent. And this is something that, uh, of course, we look back to uh, the famous episode of Descent in 1968, but, but really this is something that we haven't seen in Olympic competitions of athletes making political statements. But uh, uh, why do you think that Sochi could be different? Well, in part, it's because we think that right now, as the poet Seamus Haney would have it, hope and history are rhyming. And what we mean, what we would mean by that is that the world in general is becoming much more open and aggressive toward LGBTQ communities. And Russia very much presses against in the wrong direction of, of this positive, open zeitgeist of equality. And so a lot of people are coming to Sochi, a lot of athletes are coming to Sochi from places where it's perfectly acceptable to be in a gay marriage, for example, or to have a lesbian partner. And so to all of a sudden be told that this help, these healthy relationships that you see every day when you're back at home or you're training for the Olympics, or you maybe are involved in yourself, to be told that those are uh, dangerous propaganda to be kept away from children, as is the case with this Russian law that was passed and signed into law last summer by Russian President Vladimir Putin. That's on its face just utterly ridiculous. And so rarely has the arc of history so tantalizingly put itself out there for us to see. We are clearly moving toward more equality for for LGBTQ communities. And so that's kind of what we were trying to get at. That doesn't mean that speaking out in Sochi wouldn't have its risks. It absolutely would. You could give up a lot. Um, You could give up your sponsorships. You could even get kicked out of the Olympic Village, perhaps, by the International Olympic Committee, as happened with Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who you mentioned. But uh, we think that probably the, the penalties will be a lot less right now. And I should say, it's not just us. I mean, the International Olympic Committee's newly minted president, Thomas Bach, recently said something that was, I thought, quite astonishing. He said that it'd be okay for athletes to talk about increasing equality and even critiquing Russia at press conferences at the Olympics. I mean, I think that's a pretty remarkable admission that something is amiss in Sochi. Now, he he also, to to be sure, said that athletes could not speak out at the Olympic venues nor when they're on the medal stand. But that's just a sort of rehashing of a rule in the Olympic Charter that forbids demonstrations or protests. So um, it's not just us. Even the International Olympic Committee's head honcho, Thomas Bach, knows that that, um, this is a moment where, where speaking out wouldn't necessarily be the wrong thing to do. In fact, we think it's the right thing to do. And the more athletes that, that do it, the easier it gets on all of them because it's much harder to crack down on a bunch of them than it is to just crack down on one or two that, that renegade out and have the courage to stand up in some kind of creative act. And turning back to uh, the economic issues surrounding the Olympics, I, I noticed that this week National Public Radio here in the States is running a series on uh, the promises of Olympic Games and how the uh, the benefits don't match those promises. And uh, on a related issue, I noticed as well that a, a Republican member of Congress here in the States introduced a bill to strip the NFL of its tax-free status. And so do you see any, uh, you've been writing about this and speaking about this issue for a while, do you do you see any fruit to the work you've been doing? Are, are you getting a sense that there's a, a turn against this this partnership of the public paying and the private sector uh, profiting that, that surrounds big-time sports? I do think there's been a major shift in the way people have been talking about this and, and how sports are funded. Because before it was pretty easy, just, you know, even five years ago, it was really easy for some public official to stand up with a straight face and say, oh, the Olympics are going to bring so many jobs and long-term economic development. We're going to all become rich and all that, even though there's basically no evidence that that happens if you look at the work of independent academic economists, whereas today to do that would be to invite a lot of criticism. 
Uh, there was uh, I recently Mitt Romney, who sort of famously came in to save the day, if you will, in 2002 after the Salt Lake City bribery scandal. Mitt Romney said something that I thought was quite amazing, astonishing, and also indicative of what you and I are talking about. He was asked about whether Boston should host the Olympics in 2024, uh, being the former governor of the state of Massachusetts. And he said, basically, he said, you know, Boston, Bostonians, you might have a good time, might be a lot of fun. Of course, the sports will be great. But then to quote him, he said, quote, it's really not a money-making opportunity. Mm. Bam, Mitt Romney <laughs> is now saying that he's doing some truth-telling. You know, I give him some credit. It, it is not a money-making opportunity. It's not a long-term uh, development pattern that's going to benefit huge swaths of the city. Certain people are going to benefit, developers for sure in the long run, uh, land speculators are going to are going to benefit. Um, the security industry is going to benefit. Local policing units are going to be fortified. But you know the general population cannot expect long term positive developments in their economic futures. Well, we're almost out of time, Jules, and that actually leads to to this last question. I was I was reading a uh, an Australian sports site the other day, and there was a piece in it, and it was a a fan writing in, uh, and this is not this is not a site. Uh, along the lines of the New Left Review. Uh, and this fan wrote, uh, basically, have the Olympics run their race? Is it, is it time to get rid of, and, and he wrote, this, this anachronistic political farce. The IOC is corrupt. The money is wasted. Should we, should we be done with the Olympic Games? And, and also I'll finish up by asking you, what do you see any way to uh, reform or to salvage the Olympic Games, or has this become this festival of celebration capitalism? Is it now just simply too costly to maintain? Well, I think that we will we will continue to have the Olympics around because if you look back at the way that the International Olympic Committee members talked to themselves in the seventies and and even into the early eighties about the Olympics being falling prey to what they called at the time gigantism, uh, you know, you can see that this has been talked about for a long time, that the Olympics have become too big, kind of out of control, and that sort of thing. Um, that's not to say that the person that you're talking about from this, this website is, isn't right, that it's, it is different. But I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a history of thinking about the Olympics as becoming too big. I mean, in terms of what we can do about it, I think we're going to have it around for sure. There's still lots of cities that are vying for it. And we're going to have it around. But I, I do think that, that we, there's a lot of things we could do to make the Olympics better for the people of the city who host it. I mean, for starters, the, the city's local workforce could be employed you know, at a living wage, just have it written into the, the master plan. The funds uh, that, that accrue from the Olympics could be distributed within the host city in a much more equitable way. Hey, I would love to just say with the Olympic Village that gets created – it's automatically going to be converted into low-income housing or social housing or something like that or mixed housing, but then actually follow through with that plan for mixed housing. And, you know, there's, there's lots of things that you could democratize the sports as part of it that would bring more countries into it. I mean, how many countries put forth uh, people in the, the biathlon or how many people – how many countries are, are able to do the um, – uh, equestrian dressage, no disrespect to Mitt Romney's uh, wife's horse, Rafalka, who who participated in the London 2012 Olympics. But really, I mean, how many people can afford with the costs associated with having an elite horse and getting them ready for basically, you know, horse ballet on the Olympic stage? Instead, how about we bring back the, the tug of war? That was a really immensely popular event in the early 1900s at the Olympics. Any country could get involved in that. All you need is some big, strong people and a rope, basically, right? So um, I think with, with a jolt of creativity and, and with um, a jolt of vision, you know, the Olympics could be much more democratic, more egalitarian, and, and something that we could celebrate uh, for many, many more reasons than just the athletics that we can all, all appreciate. Yeah, you make a good point there in, in reminding us of the, the late 70s, the early 80s, when the Olympics were really – close to being in their death throes. And, and we have to admit that the people who carry off the Olympics are, are smart people. And, uh, and, and you did see a revival of the Olympics. 
Absolutely. I mean, it's amazing to look back at some of the the letters that the members of the IOC were were writing to each other during that time period. They they were kind of freaking out. I mean, it was it was definitely a, a danger zone time where the, the the reputation of the Olympics were really on the line. They to their credit, they've managed to keep the boat afloat and they diversified their revenue sources away from just TV, and they figured out sort of a recipe for pulling in local publics to support the games, even when it doesn't necessarily benefit them monetarily. So, you know, I guess you could say they deserve some credit for keeping the games alive. Mm-hmm. Well, Jules, I know that you're speaking tonight in New York City with, with Dave Zirin about, uh, about the Olympics. What else are you working on right now? What's your current research project? Yeah, well, with Dave tonight, we also have Samantha Retrossi, who participated as a loser in the 2006 Winter Olympics in Turin, and uh, she's got lots of really great things that she's going to talk about. Um, I'm working on a new book that is a political history of the Olympics, digging all the way back to Coubertin and bringing it all the way to the present. So I'm I'm trying to do a sort of longer political history of the games. That's one of the things that I'm working on. And what and what's your favorite Winter Olympic event to watch? Oh, well, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, so I sort of obligatorily have to say hockey or speed skating because those are big sports in, in my state. Yes. <laughs> but it's true, actually. I, I'm really looking forward to watching hockey this year, men's and women's, and, and definitely uh, speed skating is, is big for me. So I'm looking forward to that. But I like I like to check out some of these new new sports, at least new to me, some of these extreme sports as well. The, the snowboarding, I think, is really fun to watch. You've been listening to an interview with Jules Boykoff about his book, Celebration Capitalism and the Olympic Games, published in 2013 by Rutledge. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, and biography. If you like what you heard here, please follow New Books and Sports on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening, and enjoy your week.